0: Okay, this piece is called Can and Dry and Pickle, and it's about May Rainey Sons. If I suddenly had to live off the grid, or if the world as I know it was coming to an end, or if I entered a time machine that took me back to the 1920s, I would want to be with May Rainey Sons. Born in 1915 to S.B. and Hannah Lee Rainey, who owned several farms in Menifee County during the course of her girlhood, May remembers how to live well in the old time way. She knows how to preserve and store food without refrigeration and how to maximize the length of the garden season by using nature's resources. And although over the years she gained electricity, a freezer and a rototiller, and what was once a means of survival is now a habit of being, she never lost her zeal for the hot, sweaty work of growing a garden in putting up food for the winter. May said, I think it is healthy for the body to get out there and work and sweat. It makes you stronger. That's why I'm here at my age exactly, and because of the good Lord too. You can get out there and work, and you're not only fixing something for yourself or for the neighbors, but it's healthy. It's why I do it. May fell in the middle of nine children. Her father was a school teacher in local one room schools. He began teaching in 1900, and as was customary at that time, he passed the state teacher's examination that allowed one to teach with a high school diploma. In May's own words, my dad didn't know anything about farming. My mother was the farmer. In the early part of the 20th century, eastern Kentucky farms still oriented toward subsistence could be quite diverse in crops and livestock. May's memories illustrated how her mother's farming practices fell squarely within this agricultural history. I can remember when we had wheat fields, she said, and recalled shocking it out. Her mother spread out a white sheet on which she beat the stalks to release the husk and kernels. One of May's jobs was to be a walker. After putting on clean shoes, she and other children walked on the kernels to break the husks so they could be swept away. May's mother would fan the husks away, then stir and fan again, stir it and fan again until you had the wheat kernels there. They would take that to the mill and have it ground. Then you could sieve it. According to May, the family grew enough wheat to provide most of their own flour needs. When May remembers the wheat growing and her role in producing the household's flour, she pictures too the split rail fence that enclosed the field to keep out livestock, theirs and the neighbors. May's family did not have just one milk cow, they had a herd. Besides moving them beyond their own subsistence, having such plenty allowed them to help neighbors in need. May remembered. My dad took his cow to the neighbors. They had a baby and no milk. I can remember him putting a halter on one of the cows and driving her over and turning her over to the neighbors so they could feed their children. Hogs were also a staple of the household's agricultural economy. While the family raised yellow corn to feed livestock, especially in the winter, hogs on the rainy farm ran free on acres of fenced woods living off mast. Back then, there were beech nuts from big beech trees. They're scarce now, May said. There's a blight that stopped them from bearing nuts. Well, the hogs would go and root the leaves back on the forest floor and gather them nuts, and they would eat them nuts. And when a sow had babies, May explained, she made her way out of the woods with the piglets to be fed corn, greatly improving her ability to nurse adequately. The health of the piglets and the sow meant not only that the rainies would have plenty of pork for their large family, but also that the excess could be sold, traded, or shared. Even people who today do not raise vegetable gardens might be able to imagine how a family of 11 could eat well during the summer months, but at summer's end with fall frosts and freezing winter months looming ahead, the imagination undoubtedly falters. May sons, however, remembers exactly how they did it. We grew so much stuff, but you didn't have freezers back then. You'd can and dry and pickle, she said, and bury. We'd hole up our potatoes, she explained. First they would select a well-drained spot and dig a deep hole there. Then they would line the hole with hay, place the potatoes in the sunken bed, and cover them with another layer of hay or straw topped by dirt. The final step was to create a roof over the covered pit by making a fodder shock of corn stalks. Its conical shape shed water away from the storage bin. And then in the wintertime, if the ground's not frozen, May said, you'd go out, kindly move the fodder around, and you can open up, go in there, and get you some potatoes. And then you put it all back like it was and if you were lucky the potatoes would not rot over the winter and you would have enough left by springtime to become the seed potatoes for the next year's crop. Other root vegetables such as turnips and rutabagas were holed up successfully too on the rainy farms though rutabagas were more likely used for cattle feed than for human consumption. Sweet potatoes which are sensitive to moisture were individually wrapped in paper, placed in wooden barrels, and kept in the house to avoid freezing. But it was the unusual way, at least to me, that they kept cabbage fresh into the dead of winter that captured my fullest attention. Cabbage tends to be a late spring or early summer crop in Kentucky, but May emphasized that her family strategized to extend the growing season, both in the early spring and into the fall. Having a late cabbage crop was part of this strategy. Before time for it to freeze, and after the cabbage had headed up, ready to eat, May explain. we'd take the turning plow and turn a row, make a furrow, and pull that cabbage up and put its head down into the furrow. Where its roots was, they'd take another furrow and that covered it. All of a sudden, the cabbage head became the roots. If it was real cold and they froze, the dirt took the moisture out of the cabbage and then the cabbage couldn't rot. If we wanted cabbage when the ground was thawed, we'd just go get it so we could have cooked cabbage or coleslaw or whatever we wanted. Imagine experiencing the luxury of having a fresh vegetable in January that is not pickled or canned. I wonder if this is why May remembered this technique in such detail and wanted to teach me about it. Fruit was also integral to the family's diet. To start an orchard, first corn was cultivated on the hillside to rid the area of weeds and other sprouts. The following year, fruit trees, apples, plums, peaches, pears, and apricots replaced the cornfield. May once observed her mother looking at a photograph of an orchard in a Stark's catalog and heard her say to her father, "'We'd never grow anything that looked like that.'" But later, after she developed their orchard, she said it was just like the picture. And productive, too. May said that they gave away a lot of fruit because they had extra, even after canning and drying. Before sharing apples with their neighbors, though, the Rainies made bleached apples, So-called because the slices stayed white instead of turning brown, as a peeled apple does when it is exposed to air. Bleached apples were preserved using sulfur before they were dried, and it was the sulfur that prevented browning. Using wooden barrels like the ones for pickling, you put the apples down in a layer in the barrel. A dishpan full of peeled and quartered apples may explain you push them from the center and line them up against the edge of the barrel. You take an old mug like you drink coffee out of and put some sulfur in it and then set it afire. To start the fire, the rainies attached a bolt to a wire, heated the bolt up in a fire, then lowered it into the barrel to ignite the sulfur. The barrel had to be covered quickly because if you breathed it, sulfur would kill you. They let the Sulfur smoked for about three days and then added another layer of apples and another mug of sulfur, repeating this process as many times as the barrel would still accommodate apples. Preserving some of summer's abundance by drying apples and extending the growing season in the fall by planting a late crop of cabbage as the rainies did was matched by starting food production as early as possible in the spring. Like many other mountain families in the first half of the 20th century, they sowed early crops of lettuce, started their own sweet potato slips, and even planted early beans in hopes that the crop could be protected from spring frost. A pit method was used for the lettuce and sweet potato slips. For the lettuce, May described how they dug a sunken bed the size of a discarded window sash at hand put well-rotted chicken manure in the hole, scattered the seed, and placed the window to span and rest on all sides of the perimeter of the pit, allowing light in while holding in warmth. It was a low-tech greenhouse. She said, when other people would be a-sowing it, we'd be a-eating it. Preparing a sweet potato bed for starting slips was similar with a few twists since sweet potatoes are sensitive to cold and frost. Instead of adding well-rotted chicken manure, the sweet potato bed needed the heat that fresh manure creates. But because manure can also burn tender plants, it was covered with a good layer of rich soil, May said, from a hillside where a log is rotted, after which the slips are placed and covered by another layer of well-rotted dirt. Like the lettuce bed, the sweet potato pit is also covered with an old glass window. Planting early bunch beans, green beans that grow on bushy plants and do not climb, required less upfront work. But if frost was imminent, the plants had to be covered with burlap bags draped over tobacco sticks. Because green beans may be the single most cherished vegetables for Kentuckians, the Rainey's gamble to produce an early harvest of beans was logical. Over the course of May's girlhood, her parents acquired several farms one as large as 500 acres. While S.B. taught at a nearby country school, the family lived on one of their farms until Hannah Rainey got it up and running. Then that farm was turned over to tenants so that the Rainey family could begin improvement on another one. This intent and economic advantage set Mae's family apart from many others in her world. She relayed many stories, told as a matter of fact not to boast, of her family sharing what they had with others who had less. Seeds, fruit, a milk cow, plentiful beans, and corn in the fall. I'm not saying we was well off, May explained, but there was a lot of poor people living around us. But we was never taught to look down on anybody. Uh Uh-uh. My parents, they'd have skinned us alive. May has carried this egalitarian impulse with her into her 90s, and it still manifests itself in sharing the fruits of her garden. When she reminisced about the new vegetables that she has grown in recent decades, broccoli, cauliflower, and brussels sprouts, a story was sparked. May said that she does not care for brussels sprouts, but she had neighbors over across the hill, two girls, neither of them never did marry, who loved this vegetable. So in typical fashion, May planted brussels sprouts for them. She explained, "'We were in school together. "'They didn't have a place for a garden, "'so I'd always tell them, "'whatever they want, come over and help themselves. "'They loved them Brussels sprouts. "'We'd sit and visit on the porch. "'Then they'd pick them. "'I enjoyed it so much because I'd raise a garden "'and tell them to come help themselves, "'and they enjoyed it so much.' She paused. "'I feed the neighbors. "'It could be tempting to see May's life "'as an agrarian romance.' but that would be false. She told me point blank that she dropped out of high school to get married, had three children, and then in midlife had a fourth. That is when her husband left her. And she was nearly 50 when the local physician, Dr. Graves, and Mr. Stevens, who directed the Frenchburg Retirement Home where May had been working as a nurse's aide, enrolled her in an LPN program in Lexington. She received a scholarship funded by a program to train Appalachian nurses. In those days, nurses mostly trained in the hospital, interspersing classwork with direct observation and patient care. Her mother, Hannah, who was still alive in the 1960s, took care of May's youngest daughter while May completed the degree in Lexington. With her training, May continued to serve the people of Menifee County and made a good enough living to raise her remaining daughter alone. She also built a house on her 20 acres, the one she lived in when I met her, and she continued to raise a big garden to make ends meet, as she said. The garden not only is a source contributing to May's physical health and economic well-being, but also underpins other dimensions of her life. At least twice, May tested prevailing moral authority with the outcome affecting crops. The first challenge involved her whole family. Usually, the Rainies did not grow tobacco on the farm where they were living, but did allow those renting one of their farms to do so. But May remembered one year that they did grow tobacco. It was a bumper crop. The Rainies, who followed the religious and cultural norms of their community, never worked on Sunday, needed to finish cutting and housing the tobacco before Mr. Rainey left home on Monday to begin his week of teaching. They filled the barn and even had to set up temporary scaffolding outside the barn on which to hang the overflow of tobacco. May said, do you know what we cut that Sunday There never was a leaf of it that stayed on the stalk. It got slimy and slick, and instead of curing, slipped off the tobacco stalk. Every bit that we did on Sunday slipped off. Years later, May staged another test just to see whether planting by the signs was a credible system. She had learned how from her mother. I was right at her heels whenever she was planting, May said, But once as an adult, May planted her beans at the wrong time, according to the signs. They didn't set on until they were way up the corn stalk, May said. A garden is a site where moral or spiritual actions are mediated and life's lessons are cultivated, is likely more rare today than in the world into which May was born. Certainly, gardening has skipped a generation in May's family. None of her children keeps a garden. But an adult granddaughter does, and May has been her teacher. This granddaughter is poised to carry on and adapt May's knowledge and practice. And all of us could benefit by infusing May's habits into our own. Take a day of rest, follow the signs, can and dry and pickle. And though May would never say this, I will stay in May Rainey's Sun's light. Okay, this piece I call Back and Forward, and it's about Jasu, Kassan, and Seema Patel. Before they married, Jasu and Kassan had known each other all their lives. They had grown up within a mile and a half of each other and attended the same school, and Jasu's brother and Kassan's sister were married to each other. Raised near the village of Badwank in the Indian state of Gujarat, Jasu and Kassan share an agricultural past, and like many other Kentuckians, the community and familial ties that are common to rural upbringings. My parents were small farmers who owned their land, said Jasu. Her family grew sugarcane, rice, and mangoes to sell, and vegetables for their own use. But her father was also a teacher, and at harvest time, they could afford to hire seasonal laborers. Jasu's earliest memory of working on her family farm was that of picking peanuts. She remembered the job as easy and fondly recalled learning how to grow food from her grandparents and parents. Kassan, in contrast, was expected to perform farm chores before and after school and described his family as poor. They too grew sugarcane, rice, and mangoes for the market, but kept most of the vegetables for their own subsistence. By the time of their wedding in 1977, Jasu had turned 21 and Kassan was 27. They were married in Bodwonk, but within two years the Patels had arrived in Chicago. There they lived in an apartment, working on the assembly line in various factories, and started a family that eventually grew to one daughter and two sons. Jasu's brother applied for us, Kasan Kass- explained. He and Kassan's sister were already settled in Chicago and were prepared to sponsor the newly married couple. Surrounded by concrete and having no earth in which to plant, Jasu settled for some indoor flowers and houseplants. I missed it, she said. Kassan added that to obtain fresh vegetables, they went to pick your own farms and harvested outside of the city, bell peppers, beans, tomatoes. Jasu completed the thought, just for fun. They were accustomed to growing much of the food for their table, a cornerstone of their bodwonk life. Now in Chicago, they had to make do. Chicago and other Midwestern industrial cities, such as Cleveland, Cincinnati, Dayton, and Detroit, were common destinations for Kentucky migrants who left in great numbers during World War II to work in plants that supported the military effort. The stream of outmigration, people looking for jobs, continued into the 1960s as the coal mines of eastern Kentucky mechanized and unemployment rose. And in Kentucky, as elsewhere, the family farm as a sustainable household economy grew more untenable. When Kentucky outmigrants left their home communities, They usually headed for a city and a neighborhood where relatives and other community members had previously established themselves and could help them find jobs and housing and provide some semblance of home. Sociologists and historians call this chain migration. Immigrants to the United States, such as Jasu and Kassan, have often followed these same patterns. But of course, their journey is more difficult because they must have sponsorship from a financially stable family member and meet a complicated set of requirements, including country quotas that expand and contract over time according to political machinations, domestic unemployment, and government and industry needs. Jasu and Kassan's eligibility to immigrate was determined by radical policy changes formulated during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, a time of sweeping liberal social reform in the United States. In 1965, Congress passed the Immigration and Nationality Act. Approved a year after the Civil Rights Act, which outlawed inequalities at home, the new immigration policy challenged racist quotas that had favored Western European migrants over those from other countries. It also allowed for immigrants to reunite their families by petitioning for a relative to enter and stay in the United States. Finally, the act aimed to attract immigrants with certain kinds of skills. Because the Cold War, Sputnik, and the race to the moon had increased American self-consciousness and fear of lagging behind in science and technology, the government wanted to import more engineers and research scientists. The United States also needed an influx of doctors after the 1965 legislation approving Medicare and Medicaid had significantly increased the number of Americans who could afford medical care. The preponderance of Indians immigrating to the United States between 1965 and 1977 were doctors, PhD scientists, and engineers. As a mechanical engineer, Jasu's brother who would later sponsor Jasu and Kassan's immigration, was part of this cohort when he arrived in the United States in 1971. But in 1976, the stream of professionals from India slowed because Congress amended the Immigration and Nationality Act to require migrants to have specific job offers in order to enter the United States. Jasu and Kassan, however, arriving in 1979, met the requirements of the family reunification provisions. Jasu and Kassan, as well as their family members who followed, might be considered the immigration vanguard because since the 1980s, the percentage of technical workers among South Asian migrants has steadily decreased and the percentage of family members who come to make their lives in the United States has grown. Today, Jasu has two brothers, and Kassan has four brothers and one sister living in the United States. After 10 years of urban living in Chicago, Jasu and Kassan were finally able to grow their own garden when they moved to Kentucky in 1990. Once again, they followed their siblings, who are married to each other who left Chicago to become motel keepers in Middlesboro, the largest town in southeastern Kentucky. Jasu and Kassan went to Richmond, the home of Eastern Kentucky University, to run a BP gas station. But by the late 1990s, Jasu and Kassan had left the gas station business, obtained factory jobs, and moved across town where they bought the house they live in today. Jasu began working for the Kukuku Rubber in Kassan for a company that makes car parts. At both houses, where they have lived in Richmond, they made backyard gardens to grow tomatoes, okra, eggplants, beans, chili peppers, and other vegetables such as kerala or bitter gourd, common to their Gujarati cuisine. Kassan explained, "'You can buy some of the vegetables we use, but it's expensive.' We do grow beans that you can't buy in Richmond or anywhere nearby. If you go to an Indian store, you will find them, but they will be ordered from somewhere and won't be fresh. The Patels also garden because, as Jasu said, it's fun, and I have a whole year I don't have to buy my green vegetables because I freeze and use as needed. I interviewed the Patels in late April, and Jasu pointed out, still I have my vegetables in the freezer. In their native India, freezing or other methods of food preservation were not necessary. The households of Jasu and Kassan grew food year-round in the mild Gujarati climate. As Kassan pointed out, cooking is fresh every day. But in Kentucky, where freezing winter temperatures make year-round growing impossible, putting up food for the cold season is a boon. And Jasu is rightly proud of her stores. Growing food does save the Patels money and provides the vegetables that are essential to their vegetarian diet and cannot easily be found in Richmond. Though their daughter Seema, who sat in on our interview, agreed, she mused about their gardening more philosophically. It is also a release for them from a monotonous pace of everyday life, she said. You can see the fruits of your labor. Cassan, with his low-key demeanor, explained how his day is transformed during gardening season when he comes home from his job each afternoon i take a rest for half an hour to 45 minutes and then do something outside sometimes i park my car and i don't come inside first i just walk around first looking at my garden and even though both kasan and jasu work at physically demanding jobs when the beans are being harvested Seema said her parents are out working in the garden from 3 o'clock until sundown. Sima observed, too, that when her mother is cooking dinner, she often says, oh, this is so fresh, it's from the garden. Sima said, if food is from your garden, you feel a connection to it. That relationship can also have a spiritual quality, and for Jasu, her deep bond with the soil stretches beyond that of growing food. Sometimes in the morning when Seema wakes, she sees her mother praying to the family's Tulsi plant, a very sacred plant in Hinduism, she told me. Sometimes called Indian basil or holy basil, Tulsi is an aromatic plant with healing properties, and it is often a central presence in Hindu households. While gardening expresses a spiritual connection and practice for many, It can also manifest specific forms of social interaction that are both satisfying and edifying to a gardener. This dynamic is not lost on the Patels. Someone in Jasu's Indian group, as she calls it, advised her to periodically water her curry leaf plant with diluted Assam black tea, a tip she believes is the source of her plant's health. One of Jasu's co-workers a native Kentuckian who farms and raises cattle, provides manure for the Patel garden. And Jasu especially enjoys the friendly competition among gardeners, including with her nearby brother-in-law, based on whose vegetables produce the earliest and whose garden is the most productive. Likewise, the shared generosity that often results in exchanging seeds or plants, sometimes with a near stranger, is how gardeners establish rapport. As Seema put it, you can count on two gardeners to connect, regardless of whatever walks of life they come from. If Seema is right, and I believe she is, I wonder about expanding the concept of connection. If you come to Kentucky from some other place and you begin to grow a garden here, does the experience root you more deeply in Kentucky? Do you feel like a Kentuckian, at least in part because of your connection to the land? I asked this question of several of the immigrant gardeners I interviewed with varying answers. When I met Sema, she was 20 years old and had spent most of her life in Madison County until she became a student at the University of Louisville. She is the daughter of immigrants, two dedicated Kentucky gardeners, but not a gardener herself. Still I queried her, do you feel like a Kentuckian? She answered, what is a Kentuckian really? I call Kentucky my home, but I'm not connected to the land as much as other people are. Later she reneged a bit. Even though she sees herself living in Chicago eventually, not Kentucky, she said, I do want to have my own garden someday. I think gardening is something you have to learn on your own. I mean, you can be taught to do whatever you need to do, but everyone has their own quirks and their own ways of doing things. I think I need to find my own niche. Could Seema's idea of a niche be parallel to her notion of connection? Is finding your niche akin to finding a piece of what connects you to a spiritually and socially meaningful life? When I had asked Kassan if making a garden here led him to feel to feeling more connected to Kentucky, he said... We grow a garden to use the vegetables for our own. Plus, we have a time for fun and save some money. Sema, however, in interjected, It connects back to the motherland. They both come from extremely agricultural families. They are both connecting back. Sema is right. Many home vegetable gardeners are recreating their past with modifications to carry on what was passed to them by their families and communities. But I think her parents are also making a path toward the future through their gardening. It is not an exercise of nostalgia to produce the food that is essential for your vegetarian cuisine, to use your mind and body in healthy ways that much of contemporary U.S. society has disavowed, and to show your children a way of being that was foundational for yourself one that requires hard work, discipline, and knowledge, all the while saving money for their college educations. As both Jasu and Kassan emphasized, growing food is certainly an economic strategy for them, just as it was for their parents and grandparents. Jasu saves seeds, and this act is perhaps the one that is most representative of the connection between her past, present, and future She saves the ones that are most important to her or that would be the hardest to find in the United States, bitter gourd, okra, and various beans. She showed me her bag of precious seeds. They were all mixed together, but she assured me I know which ones are which. I told her that in Kentucky, many gardening families save bean seeds in particular, that there are dozens of local bean strains with colorful names and that a family's bean might be considered something like sacred to them. Sima said, "'I guess that's what makes my parents Kentuckians. They do have a particular bean that they grow.' Jasu responded by pulling a bean seed from her bag and holding it in her hand. "'Papri,' she said, giving its name in Gujarati. "'Papri is a hyacinth bean that grows on a vigorous vine.' The Patels planted at the back of their house, letting it grow more than 12 feet from the ground to an upper balcony along an elaborate trellis made of twine and wood. By midsummer, a wall of flowering vines and bean pods hides the walkout basement. And by late summer, Kassan must use a ladder to pick beans. I do not know how many papri beans you would have to save and how many you would have to grow to help your children attend college or to keep your past alive. But I can imagine how one being after another, like putting one foot in front of another, can matter. Immigrants and migrants who follow their families and community members in a chain migration are seeking economic opportunity, but also cultural sustenance. The Patel's papri is emblematic of both. Jasu and Kassan have covered many miles from a rural agricultural life in Gujarat to their current small town gardening life in Kentucky. Papri has made this trek with them and I feel sure that it will also be with Seema as she looks for connection and for her niche.